0: The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story slinger
1: Stephen King. Say thank you, Cy. Roland looked up and saw exactly what he expected, clouds in a line. At the rear of the barren acre, a path slipped into the woods, its head marked by a pair of good-sized granite rocks. And here the gunslinger saw herringbone patterns of shadows, overlapping but all pointing the same way. You had to look to see it, but once seen, it was unmistakable. And in this version of New York, where they had found the empty bag in the vacant lot, and Susanna had seen the vagrant dead, this was the true world. The one where time always ran in a single direction. They might be able to hop into the future if they could find a door, as he was sure Jake and Callahan had done, for Roland also remembered the poem on the fence, and now understood at least part of it. But they could never return to the past. This was the true world, the one where no roll of the dice could ever be taken back, the one closest to the Dark Tower, and they were still on the path of the beast. Welcome
0: back, fellow travelers on the path of the beam. Derek and Steve coming at you with Wheel of Ka episode 10. Yes. We're excited about it. Oh, man. I just want to say to all of you traveling on the path of the beam, thank you for your support. You've gotten us to episode 10. Yes. Um, Also, an apology on our end. Our schedules got a little nutty
1: here. Oh, Yeah. yeah.
0: We had Thanksgiving, which was our original week to Target to record our first episode on Song of Susanna. And it was late this year. And then not realizing it was also Thanksgiving. Right. Steve has been acting in a brilliant play, which has <laughs> kept him very busy as well. And But either way, we've got it done. We are here to talk. Yes. This is our first of our two-parter discussion on Song of Susanna. Oh, man. If you're reading along, we're going to take it up to the end of st- stanza 10.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so we got up to stanza 10. Yep. So everything up to that point we'll be discussing. Anything after that will be on our next part on Song of Susanna, um, which is going to be targeted probably sometime in January 2020. Yep. We'll see how it goes. Um,
1: how you feeling, Steve? Not good. I'm getting, getting over a cold. You know, but feeling good. I'm excited to be back. I can't believe we're at 10 episodes. We had that one month off. So this is nine months we've been doing this. It's crazy. It's insane. But I feel good. I'm I'm ready to do this. I am going to eat a lot of my words from previous podcasts because if, if anyone was paying attention, I was dreading reading this book. I mean, it, when I first read it, it was my least favorite. I had so much shit to say about it. And... uh I do not feel that way at all. It's
0: insane that you bring that up. Yeah. Because I felt the exact same way that Song of Susanna was just the interlude book that got you from the end of Wolves to the Dark Tower. And it's like, okay, let's just get through all of this. Right. And I remember actively disliking certain bits the first time around, which were more in the second half of this book. So I'll save that for our next episode. Me too, actually. That – now time to time second time around. Wow, I said that a few times.
1: I really, really have a different opinion of this book. I do too. I it was a lot more exciting this time around. Um, and also I I didn't judge it this time around. I went in completely fresh, really wanted to keep an open mind, and I'm glad that I did, because it's the first half of this book is fucking rocks. It really
0: is. It is nonstop, action-oriented. Mm. Our characters have a problem. Mia's abducted Susanna. Mm -hmm. Let's open up the portal and let's
1: fucking go get shit done. That's the thing. Everything's moving forward now. There's no going back. There's no flashbacks. There's no, we're, we're purely moving forward. Time is getting, is moving. It's speeding up. It's getting quick.
0: Yep. Yep. And there is a sense of urgency. So there are a few things that are happening with a ticking clock. First, Susanna slash Mia are going to have this baby. And we don't know when it's going to happen or where, but we get the sense that it's going to be dangerous. So our content is trying to catch up to Susanna
1: before this happens. Right. Because the content's broken. It's broken up now.
0: Because now we have Jake and Callahan and Susanna's timeline. Mm -hmm. And we have Roland and Eddie in Calvin Towers timeline. There's another ticking clock that they need to get control of the lot before the Samba Corporation uses mobsters to extort it from Calvin Tower. And then we have the ticking clock that like we get the sense the tower is ready to
1: fall. There's only a beam holding it up. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up, Derek, because I'm going to ask you this time first. What do you think uh, the tower represents in this book? Well, we have the beam quake, which rocks the
0: Kala to its core. We have the emergence of the term the Crimson King coming up more and more. And the tower... I think represents a few things. It still feels like it did in the previous books like a very tangible real place. Sure. that it's not an abstract concept. And in this book we start getting a sense of the metaphysics of this universe. Mm-hmm. That this is a music, a universe that once had a vibrant magical quality, mm-hmm. that that magical quality receded. They give it the name, the prim, which we mm-hmm. learned from Mia. Mm-hmm. And to an extent we can ask, is Mia a really reliable narrator? But sure. I think so in this, yes. in, in this respect, I tend to think more reliable than not reliable. Sure. When she says that she came from the prim and that magic came from the prim, I believe her. Well, her stakes are high. Yes. And she needs to win Susanna over, and Susanna needs some information. Mm-hmm. So I think the tower to me is the representation of the magical nature of the metaphysics. Oh. This world, the universe, the multi-universe, mm-hmm. it runs on a particular type of magic, and the dark tower is that remaining bit of
1: that magic oh, yeah. that holds everything together. Sure, I love that. That's great. That's where I feel. That's awesome. How about you? Well, it reminds me of an old Metallica song. <laughs> I feel like the tower has become the master of puppets. And I, I do. I feel like the tower is controlling things much more in this book than it ever has. And that the closer that the kotz gets to the tower, the more under control of it they are. This reminds me of the D&D quest. This book is, this book is the first time that the heroes get sent out on their quest. We've been talking a lot about the quest. I guess I, guess I should well, I should be more specific. Okay. This is, like the, this is like the big mission. Right before we get to the tower, this is the big mission. We need to close all these gaps. We need to fill all these holes in. And then we finally get to this place. But I think the tower is making it more difficult for them to get there. I don't think the tower... I, you know, it's weird. In this book, the tower feels like it doesn't really want to be saved this time around. You
0: feel the tower, if I understand as a puppet master, is actively... Working
1: to slow our heroes down. Yeah. And to speed time up. Funny enough, I do think it feels more tangible now. It actually feels like a living, breathing thing. The tower is starting to freak me out. This is the first time where I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately scared for the content. This is, I feel like a lot more horror comes out in this book from Stephen King. The stakes are super high. They're dire. They're desperate. Eddie is desperate to get Susanna back. Roland is desperate to get to the tower. Callahan is desperate to figure out what the fuck he is and what his reality is. Mia is desperate to have a child. Jake is desperate to become normalized in any sort of way. You know, it's interesting that you say
0: that. I'm I'm drawing out a quote, and I just realized in my notes I kind of fucked the quote up here. But the (laughs) gist of it is is that Roland and Eddie are with John Cullum Mm -hmm. and they're about to hop on the boat after the big shootout. Right. And uh, Roland does a pause for a moment and he taps his throat three times. Mm -hmm. And Eddie sees him perform the ritual and he's seen him do it in particular before they uh, cross open water. And then he reminded himself to ask about it. And the the way King said it is better, but I fucked my notes up. He never got the chance to because before he thought of it again, one
1: of them was dead. Yeah. And just says it right there, one of them's going to die. And you don't know who. Yeah. And in that moment, I do. There's a, it's funny you bring that up because in that moment, I felt my heart sink. I know who it is. But still at this point, I still got that same feeling like, wait, which one? I'm not prepared for this yet.
0: And there's no indication in the text in that moment for me to think who it would be. No. Because it it is very cryptic, and it's like, one of them's going to die. It could literally be any one of them. And you're like, and and that's also a moment that signals to me as the reader, King's got the end game mapped out. Absolutely. He knows where
1: he's going. I think he's known from the very beginning where he's going.
0: And this book doesn't exist in this series without knowing the end. Sure. Because now it's, like you said, you called it the D&D mission. I think that's amazing. It's the big climax mission. And every D&D mission has what? A dungeon master, absolutely, and the that's tower, the tower is. is the dungeon master. And here. it's funny,
1: you know, because for so long the tower—we ta- we talked about how the tower was real, it was tangible, it's an actual place, it has influence here and there—but it's never been directly involved in the action that's happening. And now we come to find out that there's the Crimson King, there's somebody at the top level of the tower, and you know, it is who's literally being controlled by the tower. And so for me, it fe- it does. It feels more like a puppet master.
0: Yeah. And we know that there are these forces that are working in conjunction with Mia against our heroes. And these forces are the, the low men working to sort of tempt <coughs> Mia into giving up her immortality. Right. All right. We're, we're jumping. We're getting way too far ahead. We're just it's talking okay. about the tower here. That's right. Let's back it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. We both agree this
1: book is holding up really well. Much better than the first time.
0: We both have a pretty interesting take on the tower. Yep. Other big concepts. Do you have anything that you want to call out about Ka at this moment?
1: Well, no, I mean, I, I, I think Ka is heavy at work here. Absolutely. I mean, at this point, it's inevitable. It is a thing. Same thing with the tower. I think tower and Ka are hand in hand. I don't really know if they're any different anymore. In fact... I think Ka might be the metaphysical concept of the tower, the tower of the physical concept, the actual structure. Um, but I, it's it's hard at work, and I, I have to say, I mean, it it scares me a bit. You know, Ka always felt like, yes, absolutely, I'm with the quartet, Ka. I'm with Roland. You just have to follow it. You have to follow it blindly. And now I'm like, well, you know, I don't I don't really trust Ka right now. Ka's broken my team up. It's it, it's it's pushing my team from the at every corner of time and space. I don't know how much Ka really wants them to win or succeed.
0: Yeah. If Ka is working in Tamden with our heroes, they're also working with the antagonists. It has to. And it feels to me that if we say that like Ka has a side, it ascribes some level of personhood to it. Mm -hmm. Ka is a person or an entity that has agency in the universe and can make decisions. And I don't know if I view ka as that active of a participant. Oh, really? Well, rather I would say that ka is more like the force mm-hmm. in in Star Wars. Let's talk about that a little more. Because the force is there, it's present, it guides things, but it doesn't give you a set fundamental destiny. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, at at least at this point, at the Song of Susanna midway point, if Ka to me is, well, then again, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, what's the name of our podcast? The Wheel of Ka. Right. And what is a wheel but a line without a start and a stop? Mm -hmm. And if we're all in a wheel and it is the Wheel of Ka, is there any choice there? I don't know, but... One of the central themes of this is Mia choosing to give up her immortality. Right. And subsequently, Susanna learning about Mia and choosing to give her help. Mm-hmm. Then there's the theme of will Calvin Tower choose to sell this corporation <sighs> or not? Calvin. And it's hard for me to reconcile how much it feels like our characters are free and choose mm-hmm. with Ka as a guide or whether they are trapped in a wheel and there
1: is no choice. And I, and I think that's, I do think that Stephen King comments on that. And and that's part of the purpose of this book series too, is to really think about that. So it's a really interesting concept.
0: And I don't know where, maybe at the end we can land on what really is Ka, but I think Ka, like the tower are definitely changing. Sure. And, we can interpret them in a lot of different
1: well, ways. And I don't think there's a I don't think there's a definitive answer of what Ka is. I think all of our opinions about what Ka is are valid because like the force, it's there. It's there. It binds things. That's what it is. Right. It it's not going anywhere, whether we believe it or not. Right. but how much direct influence indirect influence, how much choice do they have i mean it's it's just it's just another concept of free will right like are, is there free will are we preordained what what's happening you know is is there a god or is there not you know it's the constant question I mean Ka in this sense is the same question of that existence. is there a higher power
0: and and like Susanna says, or I'm sorry, Susan Delgado says in Wizard of Glass, it comes like a wind mm hmm It's not like a wind. It's a burst of wind. And when it comes, that burst
1: carries you. But the rest of the time, you're in control. And it's so interesting that she looks at it that way and that Roland looks at it as a wheel. Mm -hmm. And it's very telling based on how their stories end up. Sidebar, have you seen Dr. Sleep? No, not yet.
0: All right. Then uh, listeners (laughs) that have seen Dr. Sleep know that there's a certain line, a certain character says... That is a certain line that Roland says. Oh, really? And totally, oh, totally. Oh, now cheered. I have to see it. And it has a lot to do with the name of our podcast. That's oh, all I'm going to say. Oh,
1: no. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. I'm okay. 100% serious. Look, I'm, now I'm jet. Oh, man. Okay. It's a good movie. It's not a, I wish it were a
0: fantastic movie. It's a good movie. <laughs> but there's one moment where i am like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. It's worth I, it. I almost double took and I was like, did I hear that? Did I hear that right? Did, is that what that character said? I had to ask Laurel. I'm like, did he say she's like, yes, he said that. Brilliant. I'm like, oh my God, Roland says that. All right. Anyway, let us uh, focus back into showing sure. up Susanna. Uh, pardon everyone for that little sidebar. <laughs> but if you're listening and you've seen, um, and you've seen Dr. Sleep, you know exactly what line I'm talking about. Tough. It happens early in the movie by a certain African-American actor. Ah, okay. Yeah. I'm just throwing out hints here. Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you'll flip when you see it. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, a lot of our other episodes, we've talked the story through the characters. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to submit that we should probably do that again. Sure. But since it's Song
1: of Susanna, maybe save her for the end. That's great. And actually, when we get there, I want to talk about the way that this book is written in stanzas as opposed to chapters love it yeah who let's, do you want to start with let's start with roland great oh yeah sure we always end with him let's start with roland how are you feeling about our long tall and ugly well i'll tell you in this one he is a true leader who makes a lot of smart decisions roland's not fucking around anymore he can feel how close he is he's taking risks he's breaking up the cotet. he's he's split the cotet literally But he's confident in the fact that these two teams, Callahan and Jake, himself and Eddie, they're going to get to Susanna. Well, he's not super confident about that right in the beginning. But they're going to get to Susanna. They're they're going to come back together because that's the way Ka works. And they're going to get to the tower. We get to see again rolling the badass, rolling the warrior. I mean, with the fucking one hand, the dude's taking out mobsters left and right. He's making quick decisions. I mean, for being thousands of years old, in theory, you would never be able to tell. I do think it's interesting that his um, his arthritis is really kicking in pretty hard. Um, he's starting to waste away a bit. The closer that he gets to the tower, the further away he gets from his reality. We've talked about that before. I I love Roland in this book. I mean, it's hard for me not to like Roland. Because, especially in this one, because he's he, even though he's making some questionable decisions, they're not decisions that are actively hurting anyone like they have been in previous books. He wants to find Susanna. He wants to get to his goal. And he doesn't want anyone to die, though he know that, knows they will. And that still affects him. We get to see him laugh more. We get to see him crack jokes again in this book. I love that part of him. He's the most human he's ever been in this book. But at the same time, he's firing on all cylinders, and I do like that he may he's making a lot of big, scary choices.
0: I I agree with everything that you just said. Yeah, hundred percent. I think we've seen a Roland who is who, like in Wolves of the Cala, kind of dials back, risking it all, looking at every single thing as one chess piece to the tower. And has decided that I'm going to care a little bit about people. So, Roland, book one, Susanna is off having a demon baby. He's just like Quest is for the tower, They're right? And that's what it is. She'll it go is have story. a demon baby. Sure, maybe she'll live, maybe she'll die. Maybe I'll see the de- demon baby if Ka wills it. But mm-hmm. guess what? Quest is the tower. Right. And he very begin in the very beginning realizes that this is not going to work. He and Eddie have a responsibility he takes the two best warriors of the cotet, himself and Eddie, arguably at least strategically on the least dangerous part of the journey, which is to go find Susanna. Now there's a lot of calculated unknowns there, sure. but arguably like Susanna has some degree of control over Mia. Mm-hmm. Mia's definitely dangerous, mm-hmm. but they're going to go into a New York. They're a little more comfortable with, and they have to contend with just Mia Susanna versus sending Jake, a child, and Callahan, a elderly gentleman who's not a gunslinger, and Jake, who's a gunslinger apprentice, to go be like, all right, you guys go negotiate this deal, knowing that there is a whole troop of mobsters who are bringing the full (laughs) force of the mafia to try to kill these two to get that. Angelini's back. To me, this tells me that Roland sees the importance of, A, his relationship with Eddie, the importance of Eddie being on the quest to get Susanna. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, what saves the tower at this point? Saving the Rose. Mm -hmm. Getting Susanna is not saving the Rose. Roland wants to go save Susanna with Eddie. As it happens... The manny opening the magic door it, the magic didn't work that way, right, but that wasn't the design right as it happens, and Kav really because imagine if Jake and Callahan land in that store oh mm, and they're, they're ha- over, and they have to fight. Jake's going to take a, a bunch of them down with sure. him. sure, but they're dead. Callahan doesn't have a gun, no, and he doesn't he's not a warrior no so he's a priest, so as he shouldn't, he's used to killing vampires. So he makes a very human decision. Right. He makes a very compassionate decision, not a one that's necessarily the best on face value on the beginning. It turns out that flipping their roles not only makes it a little more interesting for the characters, it also lands Roland and Eddie where they need to be Mm -hmm. because they end up taking out a a small army of gangsters in their first battle. I think it's interesting, too, that... This major battle happens at the beginning of the book. Oh, yeah. And I think that's very unique compared to most of the other books build
1: yeah, to something like this. Well, and that's why we talked about we're not going backwards anymore. We're, we're, we're moving forward. And Roland is a, is a big proponent of that. He is like, look, we have got to move forward now. Time is getting much faster. Every time we go through a door, time slips even further out of our reach. So we can't fuck around anymore. Like we, we got to move. You know, if we want to get Susanna and we want to get to the tower, you have to listen. You have to trust me. And Roland so far pulls through. He he, he pulls through. Yeah,
0: totally. I just also thought it was interesting how he gets the Manny to help him open the door. And I thought that was a very unique, uh, the way I envisioned it, a bunch of like old decrepit men looking like Gandalf's, yeah. Without like the stamina. Like Merlins,
1: like old Merlins, big beards.
0: All praying and chanting and this magic in this like demonstrably evil cave. Yeah. You know, that's like sprouting it's everyone's, <laughs> everyone's insecurities <laughs> calling this magic to open this door. It's one of the more raw fantasy moments. Absolutely. Of the entire series. And when it allows itself to be a little more traditionally fantasy, I think it's always interesting. I think King is very judicial when he does that. He knows it's a fantasy epic, but most of it isn't fantasy in any classical or strict or uh, structural way. It's just like, it seems a little fantasy because there is this thing called the prim, you know, but that's not the main thing they're fighting for. Right, right. And I thought that was a really fun way to kick it off. And of course it goes wrong. And of course it lands them in different spots. Oh, yeah. But yeah, Roland's decisions up until the halfway point are really good. You get the sense that Eddie is connecting a little deeper into Ka and Roland is not. Yep. I think a lot of the chapters were seeing Roland primarily through Eddie's point of view in the beginning. We are.
1: Almost exclusively.
0: And Eddie is impatient. He wants to go but he also is feeling the sort of magic of the moment. Mm-hmm. Susanna's kind of like roughly transmitting to him through the Dogen. Right. And Eddie is really connecting in a, like a more like intuitive way, mm-hmm. which is typically Roland's job to yeah.
1: intuit his way through these things. Well, you know, we talked way early on. I think it was like, I think it was the second episode when we, when we did the second book that they have to me, Eddie and Roland have that nephew uncle relationship and that, you know, this this almost even if if you'd like to consider almost a stepfather role in that Eddie has learned everything he knows up until this point in this world through Roland. And he is younger. He is sharper. He is more intelligent than Roland. Actually, he hides behind his insecurities. This is a great way. We'll just segue right into Eddie. I love it. Why not? I mean, he has his insecurities, but he's more confident in himself now than he ever has been, and he's literally fighting to get his wife back. And see, this is where Roland and Eddie differ. Because to Eddie, getting to the Dark Tower is Roland's thing. And that's okay. Eddie's gonna help him get there as best he can. But right now, his sole focus is, my other half is somewhere else in time and somewhere else in space, and I have got to get her back. So now Eddie, Eddie for, for, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's probably the time where his stakes are the highest, the most personal. And I don't see it as selfish, but I do see Eddie, you see glimpses of old Eddie sometimes, his impatience, you said it. He gets impatient. He starts to get snippy with Roland. We, we come to remember that Eddie's still like a 26-year-old kid. You know what I mean? we start we see he matures more than anybody in in a short period of time, but now we start to see the old Eddie, his addiction went from heroin to Susanna interesting and, and not in a bad way, but he he feels like he cannot survive, cannot move forward unless she's with him. And the whole time he's like Roland, I thought the content was the most important part. I thought us as a team getting there was the most important part. And I think he's starting to learn the lesson that that that's not entirely true.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I love where you're going with this. Um, If we remember when Eddie first met Susanna, they almost fell in love at first sight. Right. And um, one thing that Roland sees in Eddie is that, Eddie's a type of person who needs someone to care for. Absolutely. His gateway into heroin addiction was through his brother. Right. Take care of Henry. And his brother who, you know, had an injured, um, you know, I think it was his knee. I don't remember what it was, when Vietnam, mm-hmm. which went from prescription pain pills right. then to heroin. Right. And then Eddie saw him doing it and Eddie yelled at him. And then slowly over time, they're both now heroin junkies. Right and he was never as deep of a junkie as his brother, and that Susanna kind of replaced that. That's now the person that he needs to care for. And it's interesting that you frame that within the language of addiction because it's one of the biggest themes of the entire series yeah. are characters and what they're addicted to.
1: Well, and as a person myself who can connect to Eddie on, on needing somebody to, to take care of, I am a caretaker. I see a lot of myself in that way in Eddie. I get it. I get and also as a as an extreme extrovert, needing energy from other people is a very important thing to me and I think Eddie also being an extreme extrovert is the same way but it's a little different because Susanna is the first person that makes Eddie feel whole and that's why his need to be back with her is a little stronger than Henry, a little stronger than his mother, even stronger than needing to be with Roland. But I'd push back on one
0: thing that sure. is a little bit. And I, I could be a, being a little nitpicky. I don't
1: think it's selfish for him to want to fight for his wife Oh, no, first, that's not what right? I'm saying. No, in fact, I think it's the opposite of selfish. I think it can come off as being selfish. But no, if it were me, fuck the tower. Fuck the tower. I'm not here for the tower. Oh, yeah, man. Get the fuck gonna, out of here. I'm go fight for my I'm, wife. I'm not, I yeah, I'm not going to go. F- this is crazy, Roland. he had been telling him the whole time. But I found my rock. I found the person that makes me feel whole. Fuck the tower. No way. I'm getting my wife back first. And then we'll go on your little journey, pal. And Roland's like, I I hate to tell you, it's it's all the same. You know, and we get to see that little insecure child in Eddie sometimes. I I like that that comes back. Yeah. Just a little bit.
0: And I also enjoy that. Eddie gets relatively a small concussion in the Yeah, and then he,
1: and then fucking kills half the people. Snaps out of it. He's and, a badass, and dude. gets two bullets. <laughs> I also and, just the, and this is this is a little, you know, a personal thing. I love the conversation um with uh I always forget the guy's name, John Cullum. John Cullum. About the baseball signatures and the ass and with the Red Sox have ever won the World Series and he was like, "Oh no, you you know, you you just have to wait. And there's a really, cause I love baseball. I just love that there are pieces of our reality, our pop culture that as a reader, we can connect to and sort of, sort of chuckle about, you know, was, I totally, totally
0: agree. That's a, it's great to, th- that to know that the entire multiverse could be on the verge of collapse. Yeah. And the stakes can never be higher and you could be out of time, but there's still going to be someone asking, "Will the Red Scots, Red Sox ever win the world series. I, mean, I it, love it. Yeah. And, and as like a Phillies fan who knows what their team <laughs> is usually underperforming, if at all. I know that like if I was in Judd Cullum's shoes, I'd do that exact same thing. Oh, absolutely. Oh,
1: you're from the future. When do the Eagles win the Super Bowl again? You know, most of his books are set in New England, mostly in Maine. And this is the first time it, it starts to feel a little bit more like a classic Stephen King novel. And then we get the drop ins which is what John Cullen basically considers anybody who's coming through that door. And that for years now he's seen four or five different people come in and out of reality randomly. Now we're used to this as readers because this has been happening since book two. Right. But this is the first time that they get to hear that other people, I mean, anything from low men to I'm sure the man in black at one point in time probably jumped through this door in reality. But he's seen it. And this guy's just like, oh, yeah, they're drop-ins. We call them drop-ins. Like, what? what? John Collum is fucking fascinating.
0: Yeah, he's a great character. Fascinating. What I like about how he articulates the drop-in is that there's been this urban myth. And, well, I should say modern myth because they're not really in an urban environment. But a urban myth, a modern myth about people who just appear out of nowhere oftentimes they're naked, sometimes they don't even appear human, and that there was a um, a historian that he mentions that was studying this, and nobody's taking it seriously. And in reality, we're seeing that it's not just our content that has access to these doors. These other individuals do, and if they're not our heroes, if they're not our cotette, what are they up to, and why are they in Maine? Mm -hmm. And these like adds a little layer of mystery because we know drop-ins are real. We know they're not an urban myth. And um I think there's a little meditation there about how sometimes when people are seeing and perceiving things, unexplained things mm-hmm. and they're trying to make sense of them, they often get ridiculed from others. Cause this one historian tried to publish a paper on it that Colin right. mentions. And they're like, Oh right. well, no, that's not credible. You can't publish this. People can't just drop in. Meanwhile, You have all of these normal, sane folks having this experience. And how do you make sense of the unexplained in your regular life? And what Cullum represents is a certain level of stoic um, calmness to this bizarre experience of drop-ins happening, a battle happening, Mm -hmm. him hanging out with a gunslinger and two gunslingers, essentially. And there is something about Cullum that is okay with this. There's something about him that's calm about it. And there's something about him that helps him choose to help these characters out, which ends up saving his life while <coughs> while everyone else in that store gets killed. Right. Uh, the um the the shop owner I think lives, but you know lots of right. people die.
1: It's funny. I was I was just looking through the book. There there's a moment where Cullum mentions something in the conversation, then stops short, which makes Eddie s- sort of distrust him for a minute and wonder if Cullum is telling the truth because one of the things is this, this guy pays attention to everybody that comes to this little town. He knows all the New Yorkers that come up for vacation. He know he he's on Calvin tower and Aaron deep. Now he is on them like white on rice. And so this guy reminds me, he's like pop pop. He he looks at, he's like, he's like me looking outside of my mail slot all the time, looking at the damn kids out front. You know, it's like he knows everything that happens. And the fact that he's, he's just not at all phased by dropins. That's that takes a special type of person.
0: Well, you know, I lived in a resort town for a while in Long Beach Island, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I lived there for about five years of my life and my parents still live there. So I go back there pretty frequently. And let me tell you, every small resort town has their John columns. Sure. Who knows every single person who's coming, who's going, what house has a bad boiler, which <laughs> house needs a new roof, right. which house was really built well, and you know, it has their like territory in which everyone that comes and goes, they keep an eye on, they say hi to, they're really friendly, and if someone's too loud, they're the first one to call the cops. Yeah, yeah. And he's built upon like an archetypal American resort town handyman that I've met myself that are like, yeah, there are people out there that are really like this. And they have steady hands. Yeah. That's the one thing they all have. They don't get phased. They don't get angry. They don't have bad tempers. But if you mess with the shit
1: and there's sphere, they're going to know about it. I mean, he just willingly helps Roland and Eddie. Completely. Just willingly helps them. I mean, uh, of course, he did just see a major gunfight and was like, well, you know... <laughs> I guess I, I guess I know who the heroes are
0: and he gives them, he gives them one of their cars, right. right? He's just like, yeah,
1: we're going to take this car. I'll drive the stick shift. Cause I'm sure you don't know how Eddie takes the truck. It's just fantastic. It's wild.
0: And, but there's also another layer to it that if you're fighting for the side of light and you're a gunslinger, you know, the gunslinger in order to get to the quest, they, they need
1: John Cullums along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. They do. And uh, they've had it, they've had it in in both wolves You know, I mean, at one point in time, basically Callahan was like the John Cullum. Right. You know, it happened in Wizard and Glass. It's happened all along the way. Roland knows that there are other keys in that wheel, other cogs that are going to help him get to the tower.
0: Remember the nice folks at River Crossings and Wastelands? Oh, yeah. That were there to give them information and food Mm -hmm. and send them on their way. And Jake didn't want to leave them. Right. Because he's like, they need more help and we can help them. Speaking of which. Yeah, let's talk Jake
1: and Callahan. But... Might not have too much to say at this time because they haven't done very much. They're chasing after Susanna. Um, I know that the letter's been written by Callahan to Tower, warning him like don't do not leave. What are you an idiot? It actually says that Callahan gets in his letters pretty pointed and pretty angry. Like what the fuck? Dude, we told you. We gave you one simple instruction go up there, take a vacation for three weeks. And this motherfucker and his friend are going around buying books. They're going, telling everybody that they're here, telling everybody they're from out of town. Like, dude, just go shut the fuck up somewhere. But that's not what they do. And so really, I don't, I don't know how much time we want to spend because that's where they are right now.
0: Yeah. We've really started the journey. The first half of the book, we see a little bit of them after the end of the events of Wolves, right? Um, they're there. I, you know, you know, uh, Callahan is struggling with the idea that there's a book that's written about him. Yeah,
1: and I, I mean, that's huge. I would be too. Like, what, what is my reality? Who am I? Am I real? What is happening? I'm in a book. I'm a character. Somebody wrote my story. What does that mean?
0: However, we haven't really learned the relationship to the author Stephen King and the characters yet. So I think putting a pin on that for the second half of the book might be better.
1: And I mean, all we know is that is that Cullum knows Stephen King and knows the story pretty well and is in fact read Salem's lot.
0: And in the reality is, is that in this world that we see through Eddie and Roland and uh, Jake and Callahan, and Susanna, that this is the quote unquote, the realist of the world. Right. That other worlds, as you get further away from them, feel still real, but a little less mm-hmm. real. Mm-hmm. That there's something about this world that makes it more important than the other worlds. And because of that, we see that our characters are characters mm-hmm. written by someone in this world, mm-hmm. which goes back to the idea that the tower and the beams, the bread and butter of the prim, what makes this reality really work, it has something to do with the ability to write stories. Right, right. I think that's the most I can say about them right now. up until this point. Well, so Susanna. Um, By far the most interesting part of the book to me. Oh, sure. I think think we have talked about in previous uh, books how Susanna as a character gets a little short end of the stick. She does. And she gets a whole book where she's the main character. And what's happening to her arguably is the main story sure. um, that she is pregnant with Mia's baby. Uh, Susanna's story is also really hard to wrap your brain around mm-hmm. because she is going into this psychic chamber called the Dogan. She's housed hosting this body called Mia and Mia's child, which we learn
1: was Roland's semen. Yeah. Yeah. When she fucked that demon, some, this is, this is the one. Okay. So, so there are two parts in this book that I still question one. We can't get to yet and we will, but this is the one part where I was like, okay, this seems the most of everything that's happened. This part seems the most far fetched. Like this demon was able to store semen At like 98.1 degrees, right? That it needs to, whatever the fuck it needs to be inside our body for it not to die. And just stores it and then transfers it to Susanna. I mean, I guess... I, I don't know. I'm going to fucking get, crazy but of all of the crazy
0: things that we've seen. The, <laughs> the idea, the idea that a demon can hold human sperm and shoot it back out is the one that's too crazy. <laughs> I mean, yes. Shardick, the bear totally cool. Well, yeah,
1: because it's a machine. Hermaphroditic demon fuckers too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because one's a machine. One was created by humans. This one is like, it's stored semen for, I mean, fucking who knows how long thousands of years. Cause time works funny. I mean, that's the but, thing.
0: To the demon's perspective, it could have been instantaneous. Oh, well, that's true. I, I, I get your, your broader point, though. You're like, hey, there's a lot of this story that's had an air of concreteness to it, and this feels a little looser. Yeah,
1: and it also feels like, okay, yeah, sure, it's Roland's, it's Roland's kid. Sure, it looks like, like, we, we, like we see the piercing blue eyes. And I just feel like it's, it's of the links in this book, that's the weakest one. But you know
0: the thing that I give it credit for mm-hmm. through the character Mia is building the metaphysical reality and the oh, metaphysical yeah. reality in which demons or spirits essentially are sexual predators sure and that one of these sexual predators was able to see the power in gunslinger semen and then use that to try to
1: make a weapon sure you know it's just a shame that the only woman in the book like her her destiny is to is to be impregnated by a demon with her father figures sperm
0: you know so that bothered me the first time around the second time around what i realized is that the character Susanna actually gets a high degree of agency Mm -hmm. even though her body has been invaded by this spirit she has and all of the other characters have some sort of like psychic ability that they're defines them Mm -hmm. with jake it's the touch with eddie it's been whittling right with roland it's his institution his intuition pardon me Mm -hmm. Susanna hasn't really had that and this one we finally get it she's able to build a place in her mind that she can go to and at that place she can a control her body again Mm -hmm. and decide whether or not this body is going to give birth up to a point because at some point the pregnancy has to happen,
1: and the Dogan's wildly interesting. I mean, and, I just imagine it being like any sci-fi movie. You walk in, it's a bunch of screens and there's buttons. It looks like the inside of the Millennium Falcon, and she's just watching herself. You know, like that that part I really enjoyed. And it's you know I and don't it, and, and it fundamentally empowers the character. It does, and I and I don't want to say like I don't mean to say that I hated it. It was just like of all of the weird shit that's happened in this, in this book series of all the things I've accepted. That one was like the one where I was like, no, okay. I mean, let let me, I get it. The other thing that
0: I enjoy is that through Mia learning about these spirits and through Susanna developing a sense of sympathy to her captor. Sure. And based upon that sympathy, N- not true like they're not allies mm-hmm. not like i finally am okay with it but being like i see what happened to this mm-hmm. the spirit i saw how lonely they were i saw that that they f- were completely manipulated by the crimson king's agents mm-hmm. and i feel bad for her i'm gonna give her some help also fundamentally empower Susanna. sure you know i think at the end of the day Susanna getting pregnant with Mia's baby presented a pretty big logical problem for King mm-hmm. and he had to write his way out of it. Yeah. And I think he came up with the best solution he could.
1: Well, and that's why, and, and again, this might be because I need, to, I need to get to the end of, of this book. This might be just leftover feelings from what actually happens. And me being angry about that since I've read it. <laughs> but the
0: idea that these like sexual demons can mm-hmm. steal semen and spit it back that didn't bother me as much, even though it's sure. even though it's fucking weird. Yeah, it's it's just like I said. I don't know. It it. I mean, Mia roamed the earth for thousands of years, yeah. fucking men to death.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Which we have learned happened to one of the uh, coffin hunters. Which one? Oh, was it Deep? No,
1: no, I don't remember. That's so. She does God. it to one of the coffee. Does. It doesn't That's matter right. which one. That's right. That
0: Everyone thought he got bit by a rattlesnake, but yeah. really Mia was fucked, fucked to him death. to death. <laughs> and the idea that Mia roams around and does this is like upends this idea that spirits, these magical things from the prim mm-hmm. are all going to be these cool things that we should communicate with. No, some of them are just horny and lonely and evil. Mm-hmm. And that was Mia until she saw the baby.
1: And it's also... Just another example of, of pure patriarchy too. That patriarchy doesn't—it's in all realities. In the fact that it's yet another woman who had, had to she had to give up her immortality so that she could have a child. And it's just—and I don't know what you know. I used to think that that was King being short-sighted, and I—I I don't necessarily believe that now. I do just believe that it's a comment on you know women in this world constantly get the short end of the stick. They have to give up their power to get something that they want. And
0: Susanna sees it and calls her the babysitter.
1: Right. Like that's all she
0: is. You've been manipulated by these other people. It reminds me of a very famous um, story in Greek mythology um, written called the Oristia. Mm. And the idea of the Oristia is that, um, or, or Orestes, he is the son of Agamemnon he comes back from the Trojan War. Agamemnon comes back from the Trojan War and finds that his wife was messing around and that the wife and the person that was messing around kill Agamemnon. He's like the great hero of the Trojan War. So Aristeus is ticked off, so he kills them. Mm. And now they take him to Athens and they put him at trial and they say, okay, Aristeus, you killed your mother and your stepfather and uh, we're charging you for murder. And the general gist of it is, and I'm brutalizing it because it's been years since I've read it, is that Aristius gets off because they say, well, you know, Aristius' duty was to his father. A mother, all she is, is the vessel for the children of the father. Ugh. And his duty as a as a man was to avenge his father, not honor his mother. So he did the right thing by killing his mother— because she conspired to kill the father, mm-hmm. and this is one of the foundational myths of ancient uh, patriarchy mm-hmm. in ancient Greece society, which became one of the cornerstones of the entire Western civilization. Yeah. And in this, we're seeing a similar thing when when Susanna or ch- when Susanna channels uh, Detta Walker, mm-hmm. who says, "Oh, girl, here's the babysitter." Mm-hmm. There's a commentary there about the patriarchy that I think you're picking up on. Yeah. The idea that here is the spirit who's designed to do one thing, and that's be the vessel for someone else's uh, baby mm-hmm. and for someone else's child. And you mean nothing other than that. And Mia, like,
1: in a sick way, accepts that. Oh, Yeah. I, was like, I mean, well, she I'll get, knows. I'll get seven years. That's the thing. She I was just gonna say, she was told that I'll get seven years and then the child's gonna be taken. Yeah. So, like, she she's giving up immortality for seven years of raising a child. I it's, that's nuts. And and
0: Susanna is able to see how crazy that is, is able to see the bullshit of Mia right. and still chooses to help her to me, is a very feminist moment. Now, I'm not an expert on feminism, Mm -hmm. but, you know. It's very empathetic. A woman helping a woman just to help a woman, Mm -hmm. even though that woman is her enemy, Mm -hmm. to me was like, you know what, this is the first time I feel like King's like, all right, he's written himself into some riddles with Susanna. Sure. And he's usually taken the easy way out. Not this one. This one, he's diving into the messiness. Mm -hmm. He's letting it get as messy and as weird as you can get it. Yeah. And at the end of the day, every one of these decisions that he's done in the past, which have traditionally disempowered Susanna, have empowered her. She's now Mm -hmm. mastered Detta Walker Mm -hmm. and can call on Detta when she wants it and then push her away when she does not I have a question. Why do you think she doesn't channel Odetta? I think because she's insane. Yeah. I mean, Detta is fucking crazy. Yeah. Every time that she comes out, she is raw ego, unchecked, uncaring about anyone. Detta's a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Detta is a sex addict. Dedica mm-hmm. is a shopaholic. Detta is
1: violent. I mean, but but she never calls on Odetta again. Oh, wh- I'm sorry. I misunderstood. No, that's okay. I mean, I wonder why. Maybe that's because that was the innocence piece of, of Susanna. That piece just died. I just think it's interesting that that oh that Detta comes back constantly, but Odeta, Odetta Holmes is never ever again talked about until you know, yeah, she's not talked about again.
0: It's an interesting question. You know, Susanna is so deadly and so confident that she still finds herself in situations where she needs this other mm-hmm. um Detta. But Odetta was the person she was born as. Right. right? She was born as Odetta. Mm-hmm. And when Odetta and Detta first recognized, it's like she was reborn. So it's not that I would say necessarily that we don't see her bring out Odetta. It's that Odetta died she and became her Susanna. Yeah, sure. And now it's Susanna who still has this like demon on the shoulder that she had now, at finally at this point has full control
1: over. I get that. That's great. That's the way I would look at it. Another question. Mm-hmm. And then, well, yeah, it's because it's directly related to Susanna. This book is written in stanzas and not in chapters. So it's written like a song. Why? Why do you think he chose to tell Susanna's story as a song?
0: That is a very, very good question. And in particular, we get a song such as stave kamala me mine you have to walk the line when you finally get the thing you need it makes you feel so fine response kamala come nine it makes you feel fine but if you have the thing you need you have to walk the line Mm -hmm. all of these poems at the very end are also quite interesting Mm -hmm. they all add to the myth of the kamala Mm-hmm. Which we see in wolves, which Roland dances, and in wolves, Susanna sings a song that comes back. I am a maid of constant sorrow, a song from our where and when. I think structuring it this way, I'm struggling to put a pin on my feeling. It's, it's a difficult question. It feels right, but I'm hard. It's hard. I'm hard pressed to intellectualize it. I think Susanna is best experienced as a song Mm. and in this is her song Mm -hmm. and that there's something quite musical about the character and there's been something quite musical about the character that we are now seeing here. And that musical sometimes relates in her having a great singing voice, which Mm -hmm. they have mentioned at many other times. And the other points is, you know, she's also a character that's very, structured even in her madness Mm -hmm. like her madness is split into two equal selves Mm -hmm. and then when that reconciles there's one Um, her ability is to go into this structured environment called the dogen and in there she can organize some control over her body so there's an element of structure to music that i think there's an element of structure to the character sure um what what do you think brother
1: i i think you're right on on everything you're saying I think that this is his ode to to Susanna. He owes this to to her. And Stephen King is very influenced by music. I mean, music is in every single book, and there is something poetic about, I think everything we just discussed about a woman helping a woman merely, merely from that point of view. There's something very musical about the way that Susanna has dealt with just about everything. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've been racking my brain trying to think about a, a real answer to, to why it's written that way. I think it I think because Susanna is the most different of all of the characters in the quartet, that she deserves to have her story told differently. And I do like that each of the stanzas at the very end of it just comment on what's happened in a very ironic way. In a very ironic way. And sometimes a little dark, too. Oh, that's all of it's dark. Because the Kamala's I think kind of a tease. Well, and that's the thing. I think that's I, I think we realize that we're we're getting darker and darker and darker as we move forward. And that this book, you know, the song of Susanna is it's a beautiful one, but it's not a happy one. And, and if,
0: I if I remember correctly, Susanna or Odetta, Odetta Holmes, when she got motivated politically, it was after going to the Greenwich Village and singing right. folk tunes. That's right. Music was an inspiration for her to join the political movements Mm -hmm. of the 60s -hmm. to help end things like Jim Crow, which are instrumental to her character.
1: And I do think that it it being a series of stanzas and a series of poems is a beautiful way for King to honor Susanna. Because he has had a rough time with her up until now.
0: Of all the characters, it's the one he has struggled with in my view Mm -hmm to really empower and to really give a voice. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to empower Susanna and you're going to give her a voice,
1: let it be a song. And it makes sense. He's a middle-aged white dude. Like, you know what I mean? Like, of course he doesn't know how to write a woman. Most men don't because we don't spend the time to figure out how to, or try to live in that experience. We just, you know, write what, what we see. And I think that this is really King's attempt. I don't want to, well, I'm going to say it to write his wrongs. And maybe that's not the way he looks at it. But me as a reader, it's finally like, man, this is refreshing. Like, Susanna's not just a warrior. She's not just – she becomes more three-dimensional in this book than in any of the other books.
0: Yep, I totally agree. I think he does so much justice to her character. Mm -hmm. And it, it honestly took me two reads to see it. Oh, yeah. Because the first read, I was
1: still trying to find fault. I was so angry with this book the first time I was just like, and I, and I think, and I don't know, Derek, because I do remember really enjoying the first half of this book. And then my problem came when the baby comes and, and I'm not going to talk about that now, but I wonder if when I read the second half of the book, if my mind will be changed, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. Funny thing. I finished the book. Yeah. I know you've, uh, I've had, I, I feel so bad because I know we, I know we, we sort of wanted to do this, all in one. And then my schedule. Listen, man, you know, anybody out there that's an actor knows like fucking rehearse a tech. We came and my life stopped, you know,
0: I yeah, totally OK, because this just means we get another podcast on Ugh, Susanna. Love it. One thing I want to bring about about Mia and how Mia helps build this universe when Susanna asks her for answers that I thought was really interesting mm-hmm. And Mia says to this, and this is one of the conversations that they have at Castle Discordia, mm-hmm. which I think is just a beautiful name. I did some research to try to figure out, oh, Castle Discordia, that's a reference. I couldn't find if that was a reference out there. Sure, uh, Listeners on the fellow fellow listeners on the Path of the Beam, if, yeah, you, if you know what that's a reference, tell let us. me know. I couldn't find it. I think that's something that King just made up similar, I tried to find out is Gan a reference to something. Mm. Um, is that like a reference to a Hindu mythology or an ancient Celtic mythology? Mm-hmm. I couldn't find what Gan was based off of. These seem to be things that, um, King has just, you know, pulled out of his imagination. Hmm. But anyway, Mia's is talking about how the age of machines helped recede the age of the prim, mm. which ultimately led to the death of the beams because People didn't realize when they built them guardians to protect the beams, they, they thought we'll always be there to upkeep the, the guardians, not realizing that the old ones would all die. It's
1: like, the, it's like their version of the industrial revolution and
0: nobody would be there to protect the guardians. And so Mia says, you doom yourself, Susanna, you seem positively bent on it. And the root is always the same. Your faith fails you mm-hmm. and you replace it with rational thought and there's no love in thought nothing that lasts in that dedication, only death in rationalism. And I thought there was a commentary that King is articulating through Mia about uh, the sort of enlightenment era that we are all rationalists. Mm-hmm. We are all facing the world through quantifiable problems mm-hmm. that we can, we can express in you know, intellectual terms and that they all have a solution. And that solution is always going to be material and rational in nature. And here we have a character named Susanna who's inventing a Dogen in her mind, who's communicating to her husband telepathically in a different timeline when other friends are chasing her and she is carrying a baby that exists in a, her body but also in the spirit's body at the same time. And like at the end of the day, like none of this makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that sometimes maybe there's a critique in our way that we rationally view the world mm. that we're seeing articulated through Mia. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it's totally cool. It's awesome. And sometimes it reminds us that, you know, rationalism hasn't solved everything. You know why? Because there's no love
1: in it. There's no, no. faith in it. No, there's no passion. And there's no messiness no. in it. I mean, rationalism has its, its time and place. Sure. Being a rational human being is a good thing. It's hard for me to st- stomach cuz
0: I am a child of the enlightenment philosophy mm. through and through. Yeah. I am like an 18th century like Ben Franklin,
1: <laughs> uh Hume, <laughs> and Smith. I'm an irrational actor. <laughs> these are my like these are my heroes, okay? Yeah. Like Yeah, for it, sure. It, for it sure. Like John Locke, like yeah. these
0: are the people like Voltaire, like these are the people that I'm like, "Oh man, that I read that inspire me every sure. single day." And it challenges me at my core to be like, "You know what? There's no love in that." And be mm-hmm. like, fuck the king's right yeah there is no love in that it's true. and that's why it leads to death
1: yeah it's brilliant all right well how are you feeling man what Good. else i Did mean you, what else you got here i i don't think there's very much i mean i think we got the first half of the book it's on to the second i'm excited you know i i mean i would love like i said the show closes I, I definitely think we could get that out in january i don't see why we couldn't I want to. Every time I sit down and do this, I get more and more excited. Like I, I immediately go back back to the book and like plow through a third of it, you know, because I'm all jacked. So we will
0: we will shoot for January yeah. for the last installment of Song of Susanna. Ah, and then we have one more. Then we have one more, The Dark Tower. Um, until next time, everybody. Long days, pleasant nights. Long
1: days and pleasant nights.